Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for a great morning together, singing your praise and dedicating a little armor into your care and giving of our tithes and offerings. And Lord, hearing the public reading of your scripture. God, we pray now that you would meet with us in your living and active word. I pray, God, that I would fade very quickly into the background and that your spirit uh, would move and that your voice would be heard as your word is taught and explained. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, comedian uh, Michael Jr., Uh, has a number of really funny stories of what it was like to grow up going to church and not always to kind of, not always being able to piece things together. He he tells a story once of going to church and he was kind of confused because it wasn't on a Sunday. And uh, so he was, it was on a weekday and they're at the church and he goes to the church and at the front of the church he says, there was a man in a box and so, as a little boy, he asks his mom, Mom, why, why are we here? It's, it's, it's not Sunday, and why is that man in the box? And then his mom says to him, he's in a better place now. And then little Michael Jr. says, what kind of a place was he in before they put him in the box? It, in, a, in a better place passed away, passed on, deceased, departed, bought the farm, kicked the bucket. These are all words that we say when we don't want to talk about death. We don't want to say the D word. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to see it or hear it. If there are any people who should be comfortable with the concept of death, and yes, there's nothing wrong with using euphemisms from time to time. If there's any group of people that should be comfortable with the reality of death, it should be Christians. I mean, we put a symbol of death at the front of our churches. We put it on the top of our building. We wear it around our Next, we serve a Savior who died, and we talk a lot about his death, don't we? But we don't talk a lot about our death. <laughs> and we, we don't quite know what to say when one of someone who we love has lost someone that they love. But the, the Bible gives us a, a pathway, gives us a, a guide, sort of a navigational tool to, to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, to, to deal with, with the inconvenient truth that All of us one day are going to die. Well, actually, if you're paying attention as Olivia was reading, not all of us. Uh, The title for today's message is, Oh, Death, Where Is Your Sting? That death, because of Christ, because of the gospel, because of what he accomplished on the cross and the empty tomb, that death is like a defeated enemy, that that Christ is now looking down on in triumph, and that we, together with Christ and in Christ, have a triumph over death, and that that changes everything, the rock-solid reality of the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of all those who place their faith in him, changes the way that we think, changes the way that we 
live. Paul's given an entire chapter that's been devoted to explaining the mechanics of how the resurrection is going to work. And his end game, his result, by the time we get to verse 58, we're going to see Paul's aim is not just information. Here's how it's going to work. Here's how the dead will be raised, and here's the kind of body that they're going to have. That's not Paul's aim. Paul's aim is not just information. His aim is transformation. You see, as Christians... Our beliefs should dictate our behavior. And that if the resurrection of Christ is true, and if the resurrection for us is also true, then if we know that there is a resurrection coming after death, then that should change not just the way that we think about death. Loved ones, it should also change the way that we think about life. And so Paul here is going to lay out for us three ways that our lives can change as we come to grips with the reality of a physical, bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus and of all who place their faith in him. Here's the first one. Our lives change as we anticipate the Lord's return. As we anticipate the Lord's return. Look with me at verse 50. It says, I tell you this, brothers... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now I know we, uh, have, we had a week of a, a pause in, in 1 Corinthians, and I'm thankful that Pastor Ray was able to come and share with you from the book of Hebrews, and I understand that many of you were encouraged and blessed by that message last week. But let me refresh your memory, because if we just jump in here in verse 50, and, and we, we hear him say flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, we might think, well, does that mean that in heaven we're just going to be floating spirits that are just kind of... Uh, uh, have no body and are just floating on the clouds with harps? No. Paul has gone to great lengths up until this this point, all the way from verse 12 up until verse 49, to explain, and he, he illustrated from agriculture and animals and astronomy that the resurrection is physical. Jesus was physically resurrected, and every believer in Christ will be physically resurrected. So when it says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, we've got to read it in its context. The context of everything that came for the previous 40 verses or so, but also the context of verse 50. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God in its current state, in its perishable state. It must be transformed. If it's going to live on into eternity, our bodies must be transformed from the flesh and blood that we're living in now to an imperishable physical body. Then he says in verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. Behold is sort of like old school English just for saying, listen up, look, pay attention. I want to tell you something important. And he says, I tell you a mystery. Now don't miss what Paul is saying. Mystery, when we use mystery, you know, we talk about mystery novels where you're, you, you, you don't know what's going to happen. It's a mystery. You're trying to figure out what's going on. You don't know until the end. Or there was a, a program on TV when I was a kid called Unsolved Mysteries. And when you talked about a mystery, it was like, I don't know. Nobody knows. We, we can't figure it out. But when Paul uses the word mystery in the New Testament, and this is just one of the challenges of translation, that in, in Greek, mystery does not mean something that nobody knows or no one can figure out. It means something that was hidden and that God has revealed. 
So when he says, I tell you a mystery, he's saying, I'm telling you what God has shown us. We're not trying to figure this out. Paul says, no, we know this. We know this as a rock-solid reality. He says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What does he mean by sleep? We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. I once heard a pastor joke that that would be a great verse to put over the church nursery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Sleep is a Christian euphemism for death. Remember when the disciples found out that Lazarus was really sick? And Jesus said, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples are like, okay, that's fine. He's getting some rest. Get some rest. Get some liquids. He'll, he'll be on the road to recovery. That's good that he's fallen asleep. And then Jesus says, no, look. No, he's, he, when I say he's asleep, I mean he's dead. And Jesus used sleep... As, as really a, a, a metaphor to say death for those who have their faith in Jesus Christ is not permanent. That there's a time where you're going to be resurrected. Just like when you're asleep, there's a time when you're going to wake up. The older my kids get as they get into teenagehood, you know, sometimes I wonder, are they going to get up? You know, because the sleep just goes on and on. But we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. He's saying that when Christ comes back, yeah, the people who have died and were buried in their perishable bodies and are perishing and are decomposing in the ground, those physical bodies, they will be resurrected, those who sleep, those who have been buried. But he says, some of us who haven't been buried, who haven't died, what will happen to us? Do we get resurrected too? So that's what Paul's trying to explain, that we should be ready for Christ's return at any moment. It's not that Christ comes back when every Christian is dead and buried. No, there will be some Christians who are alive on the earth and they will experience not the same transformation, a different kind because one will be dead and buried and the other will be living and breathing, but both will become imperishable. Look at how Paul describes it in verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that person who's been buried for years and years and years, in the twinkling of an eye, they will be resurrected. Those who are living and breathing will, in the same moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in a, in a blink. Can you see that? See how quick that is? Dave, can you see that back there? Sorry, it's kind of hard to give this illustration. Jaron, can you see that? Right? It'll be that quick. It'll be that quick quick, the twinkling of an eye, as, as, as quickly as you can blink, the dead will be raised, and those who are living will be transformed, they will be changed. It says in verse 52, in a moment, the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, we who are still alive, shall be changed. The trumpet's really important. Jesus gave his disciples some things to, to, to watch for. Some things to watch for in the years and decades following his death, burial, and resurrection in sort of the immediate future. And then he gave them some tips and some things to watch for in the distant future. And in Matthew 24, Jesus told the disciples, immediately after the tribulation of those days, 
The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. There's going to be a significant moment. This isn't normal everyday stuff. Then it says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus is describing a scene from Daniel chapter 7. And he says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. In the ancient world, trumpets really served two purposes. One was to announce the arrival of a king and to arouse an army. And both of these things are happening simultaneously with the trumpet. The king has arrived. He's there. The sign of the Son of Man is in the sky. So they're announcing the king, but he's also arousing an army. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. As the elect are gathered, some of them will be gathered out of the ground because they've been buried. Some of them will be gathered from their desk or from their couch or while they're out on a jog. But the trumpet is what is going to signal it and then in a twinkling of an eye, we'll be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 to 18 says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound, there it is again, the sound of a trumpet. The trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet our Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There's going to be the sound of a trumpet. And then those who are buried will be resurrected. And those who are still alive and living, they will be changed. And we will go in the air to be with the Lord. Now, we all can wait and anticipate the coming of the Lord. We all know there's going to be a trumpet. Some people, when they hear the trumpet, they're like, well, I know when the trumpet comes. The trumpet is going to be before the tribulation. And others are like, no, 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 no. The trumpet is going to be in the middle, right in the middle of the tribulation. Other people say, no, no, no. It's going to be, it's going to be after after the tribulation, that's when the trumpet comes. And then the after people start arguing with the mid people and then the pre people are like, I don't know what you're arguing about because none of it matters because it's all going to be before. And we, we look at these words and we argue with one another. But you see what we're supposed to do when we talk about the trumpet? See the, the, the end of verse 18? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Whether you believe that it's happening before or in the middle or at the end, like it's just good news that the trumpet's coming. I had an older saint take me aside after the, after the first service, and he just said, do you know, do you know how I like to, to, say, to say it? He says, be ready to go, be prepared to stay. That, I, 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 can we all hope and expect, like, long that it would be pre? Like, but even if it's mid, even if it's post, be, be ready to go. We got to be ready to go. We also got to be prepared to stay. It's the, it's the final trumpet. And we're supposed to encourage one another with these words, with the reality of the resurrection. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 also talks about the seventh trumpet, the last trumpet. 
An angel, the seventh angel, blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Some of you are hearing Handel's Messiah ring in your ears. That's Revelation 11 and he shall reign forever and ever. The trumpet, the arousal of an army and the arrival of of a king. Loved ones, this is what we have to look forward to. We anticipate the Lord's return. Notice how in verse 52 it says that the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Paul's describing two groups of people. There are people who are buried and dead and those who are still alive. And the dead are transformed in one way. Let me just break it down for you on a chart here. The dead will be raised. They'll be resurrected. That's what he's been describing all of this time so far in chapter 15. But he says, but don't worry. If you're still alive when it happens, you get a resurrection body too. Although you're not going to be resurrected, you're just going to be changed. The end result, though, is the same. Both the dead and the living who are in Christ will be imperishable. Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. This perishable body, we live in perishable bodies that need to put on imperishability. We live in mortal bodies that need to put on immortality. Our world is continually trying to make our perishable bodies imperishable. I go to Shoppers Drug Mart to pick up a prescription because my body is perishable. It's falling apart. I need medication. But I can't get anywhere in Shoppers Drug Mart without walking through this huge department, this huge aisle where women try to make the, imperishable, try to make the perishable imperishable. The layout of every Shoppers Drug Mart is exactly the same. You can't go into Shoppers Drug Mart and get straight to the pharmacy or straight to the post office or wherever. You have to walk through this area of imperishable people trying to make them, sorry, of perishable people trying to make themselves imperishable. The whole health and beauty industry, the whole plastic surgery industry, the whole uh, health food industry is all, is all this vain attempt to try to, make the imp, to try to make the perishable imperishable, to try to make the mortal immortal. And then it goes to the, the furthest extreme, like celebrities and billionaires freezing themselves, cryogenic freezing. When they, when they die, they make these arrangements so that they get put in the drop freezer in the basement so that just in case we figure out a way how to reanimate human beings, they're going to be first in line. I mean, what on earth? But in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, the perishable will become imperishable. The mortal will become immortal. And it's all because the one who was imperishable took on perishable flesh and perished himself on the cross. This is the gospel. He became like us so that we could become like him. I love the way pastor theologian uh, Stephen Um sums it up. He says, the imperishable one became perishable on our behalf. That's the incarnation. That's the word becoming flesh. The imperishable one became perishable on our behalf. The Christian inherits the kingdom of God and perishability and immortality because of the work of Christ. 
So, loved ones, this is what we are looking forward to. Do you ever notice that God's people are always looking forward? God has always arranged it such that his people are always looking forward. That's really what hope means. Our our church is called Hope Church. And hope is just faith looking forward. I believe in God, and I believe that God has something in store for me in the future. At Abraham and Sarah, they were looking forward, looking forward to the birth of a child. And then the people who were enslaved in Egypt, they were looking forward to being set free. And then they're wandering in the wilderness and they're looking forward to going to the promised land. And eventually they mess things up and they end up in exile and they look forward to the return. And all along, all going all the way back to Adam and Eve and the one who would crush the head of the serpent, God's people have always been looking forward to the arrival of the Messiah. And even though we are Christians, which is, would Christ, Christian means Christ, Christ, little Christ, we are the ones who follow Christ, who follow the Messiah. The Messiah has come, yet we're still looking forward, aren't we? We're looking forward now to his return. This is what Christians do. They look forward. That whatever we're facing in our life in the present, we have this hope in the future of a resurrected body of being with the Lord at the sound of the trumpet. So we anticipate the Lord's return by looking forward. But then to help us look forward, Paul then has us look back to a couple of Old Testament prophecies. And these Old Testament prophecies are going to help us celebrate the Lord's victory. They're going to help us celebrate the Lord's victory. Look at verse 54 with me. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, then the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And then he quotes two Old Testament passages. Death is swallowed up in victory. That's Isaiah 25 verse 8. And O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Hosea 13, verse 14. So first off, he quotes Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 is this beautiful um, a chapter where all that is wrong has been made right. And God is inviting all of his people onto his holy mountain. And there's this glorious feast. In Isaiah 25, verse 8, it says, He will swallow up death forever. That's, that's what Paul's quoting. Now he inserts the word victory, and I'll tell you why. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You can see that the apostle John, when he was writing the book of Revelation, The Spirit was inspiring him to refer to a lot that's found there in Isaiah chapter 25. Wiping tears from the the eyes. Behold your God. We've waited for him and he's our salvation. But Isaiah 25 also describes this ultimate victory. The very next verse talks about Moab. Now Moab was one of the descendants of Lot via one of Lot's daughters. It's a really sketchy story. But Moab here is like a symbol for all of the enemies of God's people. And so this isn't just about Moab. This is also about Midian and Philistia, the Romans, the the Chaldeans, all, all of these, anyone who at any time has tried to oppose God's people. But Moab is kind of like the quintessential 
enemy. They're the ones who tried to curse the people of God when they were heading into the promised land by Balaam and his talking donkey. They were the ones in the days of the judges who oppressed the people of God. They were the ones who, who, who led a sneak invasion uh, against Jehoshaphat. They were continually trying to defeat the people of Israel. And God says, on that day, when I bring my people up onto the highest mountain, guess what's going to happen to my enemies? He says, Moab shall be trampled down. The, God's people will be lifted up to the mountain. The enemies will be trampled down in his place. As straw is trampled down, notice this, in a dung hill. And he will, look, look, look at the detail here. He will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. You get the imagery here? You know where this enemy is right now? And where they're spreading their hands out? It's disgusting. But the Lord will lay down his pompous pride and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, Cast to the ground, to the dust. Notice the description there, how it just keeps getting, he's gonna, he will bring them down, lay low, to the ground. And what I mean is like to the dust. It can't get any lower. There is a victory over the enemies of God, those who have opposed God. And Moab is just a symbol of that. You know, like in the kids' movie where the good guys win the race or whatever happens, and then what always happens to the, to the bad guy? He always ends up falling in the mud at the end, right? That's biblical. The, the, that predictable, cheesy ending is, is, is how, it's all going to, how it's all going to end. There's going to be an ultimate victory that is celebrated. Turn your eyes back to... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, it says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is quoting from the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 13 and verse 14 that says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? Which Paul replaces with victory. O Sheol, where is your sting? Now, if you only read Hosea chapter 13 at the very end, you might think, oh, this is just God saying, hey, all my people, all the good people, I want you to come up onto the mountain, and then all the bad people, you're all going to be punished, and death and Satan, you're going to be destroyed, but the good people who love God, you get to be on the mountain. Well, have you, first of all, have you read all the book of Isaiah? And have you read all the book of Hosea? God told Hosea to get married. He got married to a woman who ended up being unfaithful. And God commanded Hosea to continue, no matter how many times she was unfaithful, God commanded him to continually welcome her back. And, and God had Hosea do that as sort of a living parable to show how God relates to his people in continually welcoming them back. Because, loved ones, if we truly understand the gospel, we gotta understand where we belong. We belong with the Moabites in the dung. We belong, like the Moabites, swimming in it. Cast down to the ground, to the dust. But God is a merciful God. Because these same people that God is saying, I'm going to ransom them from the power of Sheol, I'll redeem them from death. Look at how they're described earlier in the chapter. They sin more and more. 
and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. These people were so bought in to their idolatry that they were willing to, in many cases, sacrifice their own children to try to appease these fake gods that they believed in and then would kiss or honor an animal. They had everything so backwards and were so steeped in this evil. And yet God is merciful. And yet God is patient. And yet God is gracious. And as we think about conversations that are happening in our world today, and when we think about how lost people are in our world, and it's so easy for us to think, well, we just give up on them. That they're too far gone. They're not too far gone for God. People who would kill other human beings to, to pursue their own idolatry, they're not too far from God. God is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. And all of us deserve to die. All of us deserve death. But because of the cross, because of what Jesus did for us, loved ones, we can be forgiven. And so we sing, like in verse 54 and verse 55, death is swallowed up in victory. The death that we deserve for our sin because we're no better we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I remember back in high school, every once in a while, there would be a, you know, a bit of a louder conversation going on at another table, and then all of a sudden, someone would say something, and then all the guys around him would go, Oh! Or they go, Oh! They do something with their hands like this. I never really understood. I couldn't do it. And I wasn't cool enough to have that. People say that when I said anything. But there was this sense that people were like, oh, snap. Oh, you burned him. He's roasted. And what are they doing? They're taunting the other person. Someone said something to win the argument. And, and that's really what, what Paul is telling us to do with death and the grave. Where is your victory? You're not so tough now. Our, our Savior conquered you. You got nothing. This really, this, I mean, truth, truth be told, this is just bad sportsmanship. <laughs> if one of my boys behaved like this at the end of a hockey game, I would bench them for the next game, right? But this is not just a friendly game. This is not just some idle banter among friends. This is not just a sporting event. This is war. And we have won the victory. And so every time that we gather together as a church family, we taunt death. Every time we go to a Christian funeral, we say, yeah, you think you won, but you haven't. We taunt death. You know, I, I love uh, when I get a chance to watch a soccer or a football, as purists call it, um, the, the songs that all the fans sing. 
And it goes around the stadium like waves. It's so cool. And I grew up as a hockey fan. Hockey, hockey fans don't really sing very many songs except for the Stomp and Tom Connor song. And then there's one song that if, if, if you're playing your rival and you beat, you're beating the rival quite handedly, you sing a song by the Nylons. I don't know if any of you remember the Nylons from the 80s, but the, the song goes like this. Na, 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 na. Sing it with me. Na, 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 na. Hey, hey, hey. Goodbye. Every time the church gathers for worship, we're singing that song a little louder. Because every day that goes by, every Sunday that passes, we're just closer and closer to the ultimate victory. Now, you want to be really careful, right? The crowd needs to really read the moment. You need to do sort of, you need to make sure that it's a mathematical impossibility for the other team to come back. Because if you start singing the Nana Na song and they come back and tie the game and put it in overtime, that's a nightmare. But loved ones, we are sure. We are sure of the rock salad reality that death no longer has a sting and the grave no longer has victory because Christ has conquered the grave. Look at verse 56, he unpacks how it works. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death is sin. So death is like a, it's like a cobra. It's like a snake. The sting of death are the fangs of the cobra. And the power of sin is like the venom in the fangs. Do you follow? So the snake is death. The fangs are sin. That's what, that's what gets us. That's the reason why we die is because of Sin, the wages of sin is death. That's the fangs. And the power in the venom is the law. So we all know about sin. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. All of us sin in the way that we talk, the way that we think, the way that we act. Even the things we don't say or the things that we don't do can be sin. There are sins of commission and sins of omission. How does the law factor into this? It's interesting here because the, the Corinthians, they were obviously messed up on a lot of stuff. But they didn't seem to be messed up on the relationship between the law and sin and death. I mean, in the book of Romans, in chapter 4, verse 5, verse, uh, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, he's talking the whole time about the relationship between the law and sin and death. And then in Philippians chapter 3, he explains it to the church at Philippi. And then in the whole book of Galatians is explaining the whole thing again. But in Corinth, he just gives us one verse. So let me, let me just bring you up to speed about the relationship between the law and sin and death. So death is a result of sin. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But where does the law factor in? Well, the law, the law ruins it for all people. Because really at the end of the day, there's, there's two groups of people and, and most of us have married the opposite. There are law keepers and there are law breakers. And there are people who are naturally rebellious and naturally like you draw a line and you think, well, what happens if I cross the line? 
And there are some people who are just more naturally rebellious and they just move right over the line to see how far they can. They're always testing boundaries. And then there are other people who are like, okay, there's the line. I'm going to build another line and then I'm going to build a wall right here and a barbed wire fence. And so there's legalists and there's rebels. And the law ruins it for both of us because the rebel just breaks the law because they just want to. But then the legalist turns, rather than having the law turn us towards God, they turn to their own self-righteousness and their own fence and their own barbed wire and they start committing the sin of judgment of the people who aren't standing beside the same fence as them. Do you follow? So the law gives sin its power. The law is like an accelerant. If you're a naturally rebellious person, if you give a rebellious person a law, it accelerates sin in their life because they want to break the law. If you're a self-righteous rule keeper, the law accelerates your self-righteousness in thinking that you're better than other people and both end up sinning more. But here's the beauty, loved ones. The, the one who was imperishable became perishable. He took on human flesh. And Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law. So all of us have broken the law by judging other people or by rebelling against God's best way. But Jesus lived the law perfectly. In the flesh, he lived a perfect life. But the wages of sin is death. So Jesus, on our behalf, as our substitute, went to the cross in perishable flesh and perished so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but receive the gift of eternal life. And the gift does not come by works of the law. The gift comes by grace through faith. And so in Christ, here's what happens to the law. The law has been fulfilled. He lived a life that none of us could live. And then sin has been forgiven because he died the death we all deserve to die. And so the snake of death, there's no more venom because the law has been fulfilled. And you know what? The fangs have been broken off because, because there's no more sin that's being held over us in judgment because Christ has made it possible for us to be forgiven. So what is death now? Death used to be this highly intimidating cobra with fangs and venom. Now it has no venom. It has no fangs. So what, what, what's, what's death now? Death is a toothless cobra. It's just an oversized worm. It's not pleasant. It's not enjoyable. We're not going to cuddle up to it. That's how we feel about death. We don't, we don't think it's pleasant. We don't want to cuddle up with death. But it has no power over us. You got a cobra in the room with, with, uh, with its fangs and its venom. Like it sort of changes the way that we think, right? We're always cautious about, I'm afraid I got to keep my distance from the, but the cobra has no fangs. And it's, again, I'm not going to go after it. I'm not going to pet it, but it has no power over me. It's not going to change how I behave. I'm not intimidated or afraid of it. Some of you are like, I still saw a worm that size. I'd be intimidated, but just roll with me, okay? It's just an illustration. Look back at chapter 15 and verse 3. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Death. He died. The sting of death is sin. He died for our sins. The power of sin is the law. Christ fulfilled the law. 
So we celebrate the Lord's victory. But what does that, that, does that just mean everyone, you know, once a week we come together and we sing the na-na-na song and we just know that we're going to win? Is that all we're supposed to do? Has Paul been going on from chapter 15, verse 1, all the way to verse 49, verse, verse 57, so that we could just know this? No. You see, there should be a sense of humble invincibility that a Christian should live with. Not in some irresponsible, cavalier kind of a way, but a sense in which nothing in this world can actually really touch me. Because the cobra has no fangs, has no venom, and that should change the way that we live. And since we're not already at the victory party yet, the final buzzer hasn't sounded the game's not fully over, but we know the victory has been won. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? You know, with the, when the Raptors play, I'm always encouraged when Malachi Flynn's on the floor. Because I know if Malachi Flynn's on the floor, I know it's like the last two or three minutes of the game, and it means the Raptors have already won. You, you rest Van Vliet, you rest the other player. When the bench guys are on the floor, you sort of feel like it's okay now because we've won. We're, we're kind of like that. We're sort of like the guys. Are, we're playing out the last few minutes. So how should we live then? Well, we, we live in such a way where we anticipate the Lord's return. We celebrate his victory. But there's still, there's still work to be done. So lastly, we're supposed to participate in the Lord's work. We're supposed to participate in the Lord's work. I love verse 58. Verse 58 is written in the front of my Bible. Under, I have a, a number of verses that I have to remind me of God's forgiveness when I feel guilty, and then I have a, a number of verses in the front of my Bible for, for endurance when I feel like giving up. And 1 Corinthians 15, 58 is one of those verses. Therefore, my beloved brothers, therefore, in light of everything that I have just shared with you, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Again, Paul's not explaining all of this just to give us a bunch of theology, not just about information, it's about transformation, what we believe should change the way that we behave. He says, my beloved brothers, or my beloved brothers and sisters, he reminds us that we're family. He tells them, that there are three things they should be and one thing they should know. Remember, he's got them thinking about the future and Christ's resurrection. He's got them looking back to Hosea and Isaiah to, to celebrate Christ's victory. Now he has them looking at the present, right now. How, what do we do while we wait for Christ's ultimate return? Well, there's three things we should be and there's one thing we should know. He says that we should be steadfast, and immovable. Steadfast and immovable. Steadfast is positive, immovable is negative. To be steadfast means to, to stay in one place. Stead, like your homestead, or you take something instead. Stead is a place. Fast, like fasten, you're fastened in place. Steadfast means you remain where you are. And then immovable is just the negative reverse side of that. Because you remain where you are, you don't move. 
because we know that one day we will be changed in an instant, that while we wait long and long and long for that moment, because we know we will be changed, we need to live our lives in such a way that we never change, that we never depart from the reality of the gospel. Now think about Corinth. They were getting moved all over the place. They were being steadfast. Rather than staying, trusting in Christ and his resurrection, they were, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos. They weren't steadfast because they were focused on worldly leaders, and the church today is, is, is the same. Rather than remaining steadfast, they had all these messed up ideas about sexuality. Some of them weren't even sleeping with their spouses. Others had spouses but were sleeping with prostitutes. They weren't steadfast. And that's the same today. We have all these messed up ideas about sexuality. And in Corinth, they were under all of this pressure to follow the wisdom of this world and to be considered wise among the philosophers and the academic elites. And is that not true for us today? Is not it harder than ever as a Christian to remain steadfast and to say, no, I believe this about what it means to be human. I believe this about what it means to be a man or a woman. I believe this about the purpose and meaning of life. I mean, I, I, I believe this about justice and oppression. And all of this pressure to, be, to move, but we don't move. Because we know that the resurrection is coming. We remain steadfast and immovable. I love how Paul closes this chapter the way that it began when Phil Darko was walking us through the beginning of this chapter. Paul said, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You see, all of those words, standing, holding fast, vanity, it's all getting repeated at the end of the chapter. It's called an inclusio. If any English teachers in the, uh, in the house right now, you'd be proud of me for noticing that. When you sort of end the way that you began, it's called an inclusio. That's what Paul's doing. He's wrapping up this thought. He's telling them to be consistent Steadfast and immovable. And then always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is how we should be. We should be. Our identity should be that we are always abounding in the work of the Lord. We, so let, let's just, let's just, let's get real practical right now. As you think about the next seven days, and as you think about the next, you know, seven to eight weeks of the summer, you look at your calendar, you look at your to-do list, is looking at your calendar and your commitments for the next week and for the next several months, does your calendar reveal that you're abounding in the work of the Lord and that you're always abounding in the work of the Lord? Or is the work of the Lord something that you're just, if I get around to it, or if it fits with my, my, I'll try to slot serving the Lord in here or there. Are you abounding in the work of the Lord? What would Hope Church look like if half of our congregation got halfway to abounding? And, and, and then what would, what would Hope Church look like? Forget half and half. What if, what if 100% of the Hope Church people just said, you know what, enough is enough. I'm not just, I'm just going to stop coming to just sit. I'm going to come to serve. And, and what if, what would happen? 
to our young adults ministry and our youth ministry and our green team maintaining the property and our welcome team and our, our Hope Kids team and our, and our missions advocacy groups who are caring for people overseas and the Pregnancy Care Center and the Prison Fellowship. What would happen to those ministries if every member of Hope Church started living out verse 58 and were always abounding in the work of the Lord? Because that is what we're called to be, steadfast and immovable and always abounding in his work. So there's three things that we're supposed to be and then one thing that we're supposed to know. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Knowing that your labor is not in vain, but your labor is not in vain only if it's in the Lord. And remember, in the Lord is used twice here. It's the work of the Lord, and it's to be done in the Lord. We're to abound in the work of the Lord, and we are to labor in the Lord. You see, because here's the thing. If you decide to abound in the work of the Lord, if you decide to serve God with intentionality, that's going to involve that you're going to have to serve some people. And it's a wonderful joy to serve the Lord. Sometimes it's hard to serve people. Sometimes you try to help others and they turn around and hurt you. And there's all kinds of confusion and misunderstanding that happens when we start. I just got to tell you, it's just, it's just what happens. But your labor, even though it might be hard, even though it might be difficult, your labor will never be in vain if it's in the Lord. If you serve in yourself, if you serve in your own strength, if you serve for your own agenda, if you serve because of some sense of guilt or, or obligation, then you're going to want to quit. But if your labor is in the Lord, it will not be in vain. Because if it's in the Lord, think back to chapter 3, you're going to build with gold and silver and precious stones. If you, if you serve, if you labor in the Lord, it's going to be with those things that will last the fire of judgment. But if you serve in yourself, it's just wood, hay, and straw. It doesn't matter. knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Because here's the truth, loved ones, that the trumpet is going to sound. Jesus tells all kind of parables about servants and masters coming home. And the servants, the good servants, are the ones who are active and engaged in serving the master when he returns. Because the trumpet's going to sound. And at that point, no matter what hardship we endured, no matter what we gave up to serve him, it will all be worth it. It won't be in vain. Because when that trumpet sounds, that means that God has ultimately defeated Satan, that light has triumphed over darkness, that truth has triumphed over lies, that good has triumphed over evil, that love has triumphed over hate, and that life has triumphed over death. Our labor is not in vain. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this reminder, this encouragement of what is awaiting us in the new heavens and the new earth, that what is awaiting us when you come to gather your elect from the four corners, those who have fallen asleep and those who are still alive. Lord, I pray that you would help our church as the weeks go by, as the Sundays go by, I pray that we would be more zealous in our celebration and declaration of the victory that we have over death, that we would sing a little louder. And Lord, I pray that we would not only be zealous in our worship, 
but also in our work, that we would abound in the work of the Lord, that there would be no empty volunteer ministry positions here at Hope Church because we are a people who are steadfast and immovable and are always abounding in the work of the Lord. And so God, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would draw us very near to you and fill us with the power of the Spirit to be able to serve you in the power that you supply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.